Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. This week on 30 with Murdy, a conversation with Jeff Simoleon. Without his vision, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. As the head of MS Broadcasting, Jeff Smolian pioneered all sports radio when he started WFAN and made 24-hour sports talk a real job. The anniversary is approaching, so it's a good time to reminisce. July 1st, 1987, 33 years ago next week, Susan Waldman took the air for a sports update at 3 p.m., and WFAN was off and running. How did the idea come about, and what were the early lean years like when Fan tried to be a station filled with nationally known voices rather than New Yorkers? We talk about that here. Shortly after WFAN became a success, Smullyan got into the business of Major League Baseball when he bought the Seattle Mariners in 1989. His term as an owner was a short one, only three years, but a lot went down in those three years that impacted the game long term, and Smullyan's perspective there is a good one. For some stories about the early days of WFAN, about the trials of owning a team in Seattle before they were good, for some memories of Ken Griffey Jr., and for the story of how Jeff and Susan Waldman inadvertently got Buck Showalter, the Yankees' managing job, here's my conversation with the chairman of the board of MS Broadcasting, Jeff Smullyan. Jeff, first of all, as we come up to another anniversary, where did the idea come from? How did it grow to start an all-sports radio station and be the first one to do it? Well, the idea really came to me a long, long time ago in the, in the mid-60s when I was not paying attention in a, in a telecommunications class at USC. <laughs> and, and, I, and I thought about it as one of those things you put in the back of your mind. And in 19, I think it was 85, 86, we, we were buying, Emmis was really built to buy FM stations and do music. Um, and we, we had a chance to buy the Doubleday stations, the last three Doubleday stations, WADA in Washington and, and what became Hot 97 uh, in New York City. It was originally Hot 103.5. And it came with an AM station, which is WHN. Um, and, I, and when we took the AM station, it was the first AM station we had purchased. We said, okay, what do we want to do with it? And it was the largest country music station in America, and it had the Mets. But being the largest country music station in America just meant that it was, uh, uh, you know, doing country music in New York where there's 16 million people. 
but it, but the rankings were really not very good, and we always thought that all music would gravitate toward AM. I mean, toward FM. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked about it and said, "Look, if AM is just going to be the band of information, um, you know, all news is WI, WCBS and WINS, and WABC and WOR were talk." So it was like, look, you know, if I ever want to do this all sports idea, this is the time to do it because you've got, you know, 160 games a year or more with spring training of the Mets. Um, And you also have, you know, you've got New York, which has more sports than anywhere. So we said, what the heck? And the the story that I've told a lot of times is that when we did it, um, we all met at a manager's meeting. And Emmis is a very collaborative culture. So we talked about it and it got voted down. And my friend Steve Crane was my lifelong friend and was at Emmis for many years, said, what do you want to do? And I said, you can't lead where people won't follow. Uh, so we're not going to do it. And the next day, Rick Cummings and Doyle Rose came into my office and they said, look, we still think it's a stupid idea, <laughs> um, but we owe you one. And the company's really doing well everywhere else. So let's do it. And we did it, and it sort of became known as Smolian's Folly. Um, Jim Lampley was our first midday guy. He always called it the Vietnam War of Emmas. <laughs> and I always joke, Greg Gumbel was our first morning man. And, you know, we had, you know, more more people on this phone call than listened to Greg Gumbel. <laughs> um, but it, it, was, it was slow. And then a year later, we bought the NBC stations. We switched the frequency from 1050 to 660. We inherited Don Imus. And at the same time, after about a year and a half into the project, the average sports fan, instead of going to WINS and WCBS for their scores on the 15s and 45s, started coming to us for information. So the combination of becoming the sports authority and also having Imus in the morning is what really turned it around. When did you recognize that the national sound, quote unquote, wasn't working, that the station just didn't sound enough New York? I think early, fairly early on. We brought in a lovely man named John Shannon who died very early on. Uh, And John really wanted to build this national platform and uh, a lot of cost, a lot of, you know, a lot of expense in people. Um, and the idea was you needed national voices uh, and it needed to be sort of a national station. And I think we intuitively knew that may not have worked. We, we really changed John out within the first year mm-hmm. uh, and then started to focus on the local stuff. So um, how close? Listen, I've heard the tales all through the years. I've been a part of FAN since my internship in 1991. And I've, wow. heard, the t- I've heard the tales of... Uh, how bad it was in the early going and how, you know, it was almost month to month at one point until you mentioned the takeover of the NBC stations and I miss coming aboard. How close were you to shutting it down or taking on bigger losses or, or just pulling the plug? Was it a, Hey, we've only got two more months to go. Was it ever that no, close? No, Sweeney. It wasn't that um, because we were doing well at the time. And I can remember when we bought the NBC stations, you know, you always meet with your bankers and the bankers said, boy, you know, this fan is, is sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, how long are you going to do it? And, and our position's always been, look, we're going to do something. If it doesn't make sense, we're, we won't do it. Um, but I think, you know, we said, look, you know, we're going to give it more time. 
We're going to see how the merger goes, and then we'll address it. So it wasn't really month to month at all. Um, but it was clearly, you have to know the culture again at Amos. There's a lot of needlers around here, always has been. Hmm. Um, so the joke used to be at 5 o'clock, somebody come in and say, well, it's 5 o'clock. We just lost another $28,000 at FAN today. <laughs> um, but it was, it, you know, I mean, listen, I, I, there was a lot of skepticism, but there was never a time where we said, hey, if by this date, it, you know, if we don't see any signs of life, we'll pull the plug. But clearly, I mean, it, it was, you know, I mean, if it hadn't turned around, would we have given it three more years? Probably not. Mm. Um, but once we did the NBC merger, it really came together fairly quickly, probably within the first year. So there was never really a time where we said, this has got three more months and it's done. But clearly, everybody looked at us and said, hey, and, and the company was fortunate because almost everything else we were doing was doing very well. Uh, if it, if uh, we had a lot of other things that weren't working, then the bankers would say, hey, you got to cut this off right away. But we never really we never came to that position. You had some really good hosts on the air in the early years after, you know, that initial transition. Uh, guys yeah. who have still been a part of the station or gone on to other things around the country. Uh, but that quote unquote New York sound that I'm talking about. Yeah. Was it not until Mike and the Mad Dog really took off that that's that it didn't sound New York really until that happened? Well, well, it was a little earlier than that. I mean, the Mike and Mad Dog, the Mad Dog. You know, we had Bill Mazur. Yeah. And Bill was certainly a New York guy. Um, we had um, Steve Summers, a very much a New York guy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to remember everybody. It's, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I think Mike, I think the combination of Imus. And then Mike and the Mad Dog just coming together. And I can still remember, you know, Francesa, uh, who wanted to work there in the very beginning and really just said, I got to work here. I got to work here. And he was, a, you know, he was known. I can still remember that it's like, hey, Francesca's a, a genius, but he's a producer. He's not an on-air guy. Yeah. And he begged for a chance and they put him on the weekends and everybody said, hey, this guy's pretty good. Uh, and I can still remember when they brought Russo in. And he was doing mornings on with Imus. And I, I can still remember to this day, Imus said, this guy sounds like Donald Duck on steroids. Yeah. But it just, you know, it was fortuitous. It all came together. I think Mark Mason and Rick Cummings put those guys together. I mean, it, you know, um, and it was certainly spectacular when it happened. You know, Jeff, not just Mike and Chris, but everybody at the radio station has their own voice. And I remember, you know, growing up and, and trying to get into radio and wanting to be in radio. And there there always seemed to be this sound. The DJs had to have a certain sound. The announcers had to have a certain sound. Did yeah. sports talk kind of break away those barriers because it well, just I appeared think... to be, you know, guys sitting around talking about something that maybe wasn't as important as those other things? Yeah, I think that was us. Um, I can still remember... You know, in the very beginning of Emma's, long before, um, long before Fan, Rick Cummings saying, you know, there's a lot of guys who we used to call them Ronnie Radio guys, who yeah. have that, you know, that radio voice. And 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 I think in the early days we said we got to have people more conversational. So I I don't think that was Fan. I think that was just the nature of what we thought better radio was. You know, mm -hmm. having relatable people who were just talking to you. And they didn't all sound like, uh, I was going to say, Gary Owens on Laugh-In. Right. That probably goes before, way before your time. I know who you're talking about. The one thing that struck me, I remember a long time ago seeing what the ratings numbers were for Mets games at night. It was after you made the switch over. 88, yeah. 89, 90, the Mets are, uh, they're the team in New York. The Yankees are headed towards last place. 
and the Mets are the the hot team. Uh, yeah. The ratings numbers for the Mets are out are, are, were astounding at nighttime. There, you yeah. don't you only get a fraction of those numbers now. Yeah, well, that's you know that that's really a function of a lot of things. Um, the Mets were the hot team. Baseball was was a much bigger sport. Um, you know the the the, the real you know I can we were talking the other day about baseball and you know when I was in baseball you know the National Football League would never dream of running a Monday night football game up against the World Series right. so wouldn't do it. Well, today I think when the NFL runs a Thursday night game up against the World Series and it beats it two or three to one. Yeah. So you've had a major major change not only in radio but. But just the, 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 you know, the impact of, that baseball's had on American society. And I think you had a certain point in, in you know, kind of the radio history where uh, a lot of the baseball games were still on cable TV at that point, And not as many people had cable TV. You, were, that, that's you, exactly had, to watch, right. you had to listen to the game on the radio. That's right. And, and baseball was sort of the ultimate summer game where you sat out in the patio and you listened to the game. But I think, you know, the, you're right. Cable TV became pervasive and every game was on cable. And I think I think so many things had changed in society over those years. Jeff, I want to ask you about the day that WHN switched to FAN and what you remember about it. Because, you know, follow me on this. Um, I have a lot of people, now that I've been fortunate enough to cover baseball for a long time, people tell me that I'm in baseball. And I say, no, I'm in radio. Because if my radio station decided tomorrow they wanted to play country music, well, I'd be in country music, not baseball. And yeah. the irony there is that HN changed from country music to baseball. What do you remember about the switchover and the people that were at HN and what they thought their future was going to be? Well, I think it was, I think we made, I, I, I believe that, you know, we made the transition. I think the HN people, a lot of people stayed. Emesis sort of culture is not to blow people out, mm-hmm. but obviously the on-air people left. A lot of the back office people stayed. Um, I mean, it was, you know, if you're doing, listen, if you're doing country, it, it's hard to do, um, um, you know, be knowledgeable about sports. So the on-air transition was made and everybody sort of knew it because it was, it was announced and it was coming. So that, that transition occurred. I could still remember the first day being there in the studio and um, um, Susan was doing an update. And I, and, and, those, and in those days I was, I was really involved with that radio station. And I remember saying, she's terrible. She's <laughs> awful. She's just terrible. You got to get her out of there. And they made her a reporter. And of course, she became the most knowledgeable sports reporter in the world. Um, and, I, and I always laughed because I was so thrilled because of her success. And when I was in baseball, I, I told this story a lot. Um, I, she was in the press box. The Yankees were there. And I said, Susan, you know, this is several years later, obviously, tell me who's the best young mind in baseball? And she said, um, Buck Showalter. And I'll never forget this. And I, so I went to our people and said, look, we ought to talk to Buck Showalter. Well, ironically, Buck Showalter had been fired about two days before by George Steinbrenner, who fired all the coaches and all the staff. So we, we flew Showalter out for an interview. And I'll never forget this. Apparently, George said, why did I fire a guy that Seattle wants to hire as manager? And he flew him back to New York, and lo and behold, hired Buck Showalter as the next manager of the Yankees. Wow! So I always felt like Susan Walden got him at that job. She just, and I, I know I've told her in the intervening years, but I always thought that was remarkable. 
That's fantastic. Listen, I want to get into your, your baseball ownership a little bit. You sure. own the Mariners for a, a very short period of time. Just three years. Yeah, when you consider today, owners hold on to that property and the value that it accrues. Uh, yeah. But it seemed like there were a lot of odd things that happened uh, during that three-year period. You had to uh, make a collusion payment, even though collusion yeah. happened before uh, yeah. you owned the team. Free agency yeah. exploded. The Kingdom lease was a mess, and you didn't have a good TV deal. Did all of that contribute to you only holding the Mariners for three years? Yeah, did we? I've always said we we um, we couldn't afford to lose fifteen million dollars a year on a baseball team. Just couldn't do it. Uh, we did all of our projections. I'll never forget. We did our projections and said if we could get this franchise from fourteenth in the American League and player payroll to seventh. We ought to be competitive. Um, and we did our, and I'll never forget, we did our budget and said that, you know, I think the pay, payroll, believe it or not, was like $7 million. And we said, let's get it to $20 million in the first few years. And that ought to put us in the middle of the pack. And and we we got the payroll, to, I think, 21 or $22 million. And not only were we still 14th, but we were 14th by a larger margin than we were. <laughs> so it was that. It was, we couldn't get a cable deal. Um, I, I could... Borea, I won't take you through the whole story, but TCI, which was John Malone, they owned the whole market. And they were one of the few places where the guys who owned the sports channel also owned the cable system. So there was no middleman. In almost every other market, you had like sports channel or you had MSG, where you had an independent entity, which negotiated with the team, and then they had to get the games carried on the cable system. So we said, this, is, this should be easy. There's no middleman. And I'll never forget the average in markets our size in those days was about three to four million dollars a year, and they offered us like five hundred thousand dollars. And I and I said, how can this be? And they said because we own the channel, we charge people two bucks a month. They don't know it, but that we own the system, so we charge whatever we want. He said, why should we give any of it to you? We keep the money anyway. <laughs> so that taught me more about the economics of television and cable TV than anything I've ever done. Um, and then, and it, and it was a, it was a city, and, and I love Seattle. I always said I'd like to do anything in this town, but on their baseball team. But they had they had really won the, the they had won it through litigation. They sued baseball when baseball took the pilots out in '69. They sued baseball. They found some damaging information about baseball, and they basically said, "You either give us a franchise, or this is going to be public." Um, and they got the franchise, but it was always a stepchild. Um, and I think I, I always said I, I, our knowledge of the economics of baseball were terrific. Uh, our knowledge of the internal politics of Seattle were awful. Um, and I always said it was more like a, it was almost like a, a, a sociology experiment rather than a baseball experiment. Um, so that's a that's a short version. But and then the collusion, you know, obviously when we got into baseball. I could still remember the lawyer said, look, this can't possibly be more than a couple hundred thousand dollars a team. And I always laughed. The team before us that sold was the Rangers. And George Bush got the same report we did. And he made a deal with um, Eddie Childs, who owned the team. Um, and I think the deal was that his lawyer said, look, this can't possibly be more than two or three hundred thousand dollars. So their deal with Childs was that he would pay the first five hundred thousand dollars and George's group would pay anything above. And, you know, and they thought, well, this is great. We're never going to pay a penny. Well, as time went on, every time we get an update, 
from the lawyers, it got worse. First, it was 500,000, then it was a million, then it was 3 million, then it was 5 million. And it finally settled at, I think, $12.5 million a team. And, you know, and I, I remember when, the, when we got the news and I was sitting at an owner's meeting and I said, look, would somebody at least collude with me? Because I just paid $12.5 million <laughs> and I wasn't even here. <laughs> so it was, but it, that, was, uh, that was the way it was. If there was, was there any one thing that you said, you mentioned losing 15 million a year. Uh, is there any one thing that could have kept your ownership in a, in a, you know, longer than what it was? Was it a move to Tampa? Was it an earlier move to revenue sharing? Was it a stadium deal? Was there yeah. any one silver bullet? Well, any of those things. I mean, listen, you know, I got in my last six months, everybody, the reason I became a pariah in Seattle in my last six months is that nobody in their dream, there was anybody in their right mind that would ever buy that team. And everybody assumed, and baseball assumed it. Baseball, I, you know, I think that a lot of people looked at us as like a lab experiment. Mm-hmm. Look, we'll send these guys to Seattle. They're young guys. They're really good marketers, um, but they're not going to make it either. And then we'll let them go somewhere where it makes more sense. Um, you know, I mean, uh, uh, that was the prevailing wisdom in baseball, that it was never going to work in Seattle. Um, I got in trouble at the very end. Somebody said, isn't it true you can make more money than in Tampa than you can here? And I said, God, I could make more money in Duluth than I can. <laughs> but I think that was the fear. And we always said we had a lease. And if somebody wanted to buy it, what's interesting was they finally found Nintendo. And the reason they found Nintendo was supposedly, I've heard this story, I assume it's true, Slade Gorton, who was the absolute father of baseball in Seattle. Gorton was the county attorney who sued baseball when the pilots left. He's the one who found the damaging information. He's the one who basically said, you either give us a team or releasing this information. And and Gorton had gotten, by then he was a U.S. senator, and he had gotten copyright protection for Nintendo for video games. And that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to Nintendo. And he went to him and said, you owe me a big favor, buy this baseball team. And by the way, you'll never lose any money if you buy it. You'll be heroes, you won't lose any money. And they did it, and I think, and I, of course I heard all the stories that after a couple of years they said, oh my God, we're losing a fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, then, and then they got the stadium and, and they got a good cable deal. Um, but, but they did it because once they had it, they were stuck with it. Um, and they, and the, and the, and the losses stopped. Um, but I can tell you that the joke was that we had a, Stuart Lane was our marketing guy and I'll never forget this. He came to me in the first, our first season and said, I got a great idea. Let's play Nintendo video games on the diamond vision and we'll have two kids play and they'll play for prizes. And we'll also have a charity and they'll play for charity. And, and we'll sell it to Nintendo, and, and I'm going to pitch him $100,000. He said, this is a great idea. He went to Nintendo, and they turned it down. Hmm. And then the next year, he went back and said, hey, we'll do it for $50,000. And they still turned it down. Finally, he said, look, we don't, you don't have to pay anything. We just want to make sure we can play Nintendo video games on the scoreboard. And they basically came back and said, well, you don't understand. Baseball doesn't matter to us. We don't care. <laughs> Um, and I had to laugh. I believe that the day they bought the Seattle Mariners, they had never owned a ticket, a season ticket to a Mariner baseball game ever. So, but they did it for other reasons. Um, and that's, you know, and, but I think, I think I was vilified because everybody said, well, this team's going to Tampa. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we would have gone, I would have gone anywhere. You know, I loved it. 
but I always knew we were, we, we had no, we, we, the, the biggest challenge was in a small town, you have to have corporate support. You got to have government support. You know, you don't need that in New York. You don't need it in LA, but you know, I live in Indianapolis and I can tell you the Colt Pacers wouldn't be here without a great partnership between the between the community and the corporate community and the, and the, the, and the, the government and the ball clubs. And in Seattle, that's what you needed. Today, you know, Seattle has grown so much, you probably don't need as much, but it, it was a different time. If you had moved to Tampa, you've seen what the Rays have been up against for the last 20 plus years. What do you think would have happened then? Well, I will, I'll never forget that we went to the stadium and my closest friend in the world was president of the team. And conventional wisdom was Tampa was a great market. And Gary looked at the stadium and he said, I think this is, this is the kingdom with a better roof. Yeah. Um, and the, and the challenge with Tampa was, and we knew it, but I think, you know, in those days it was like, look, if we can go somewhere, what the heck, um, the, ta- the they built the stadium in St. Petersburg, uh, the, the bridges from Tampa where most of the population were, were kind of a nightmare. And, and so you sort of knew that Tampa was going to be a challenge franchise. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times the, uh, the information that the ownership group held over, uh, MLB. I'm not yeah. familiar with that part of the history. Has that ever come out? What they held? I over think that? it's been written. Um, supposedly they got recordings of an ownership meeting um, where somebody said something disparaging about Seattle, or said several disparaging things. Uh, I can tell you that by the time I got in baseball, nothing was ever recorded. I can tell you that. <laughs> so whatever whatever was on the tape that Slade Gorton got. They, it ended the practice of recording the meetings. That I can tell you. Uh, what was it like for you? There's a special coming up on MLB Network about Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, yeah. He came to the majors under your ownership. Uh, while you're dealing with all the business aspects of this and eventually selling in three years, were you able to appreciate watching the game every night and seeing what was blossoming in 19, 20, 21-year-old Ken Griffey Jr.? Yeah. Um, you know, my favorite part of baseball by far was Kenny. Kenny was like a kid brother in, in, in Seattle. We were one of the few teams that didn't have its offices in the ballpark. So we, we had an office about two or three blocks away and we walk over every night. And when you're in ownership, you know, you've got to entertain politicians and sponsors and dignitaries and whatever. And in the owners, in the owner's box, but we would always start down in the field. There was a, there was a little area behind home plate where this they'd run the speed gun and then there was a place where we'd get hamburgers so we'd get a hamburger every night and and every night before the game junior would come in and just shoot the breeze with us um he was just the best um the, my favorite part was watching junior hmm. absolutely the best um you know and and i mean he really was you know i i listen i'm biased i was a, i grew up as a willie mays fan and I always thought Willie Mays the best, greatest baseball player I ever lived. But I think if Junior had stayed healthy, I think he would have broken every record in baseball. So, Jeff, as you're watching Ken Griffey Jr. and Randy Johnson, Edgar Martinez, and Tino yeah. Martinez, and all the all the magic of 1995 and the full yeah. houses at the Kingdom, uh, yeah. how loud it was. They're taking down the Yankees in the playoffs, and they're, right. they're saving baseball in Seattle. What were you thinking watching that? Well, you know, I knew the history. There was a great, somebody sent me an article like the, on the 10th or 12th of September. Uh, and they were probably four or five games out. 
and there were like the usual 10,000 people in the kingdom. And Jay Buhner was looking out in the crowd and he says, you know, this is hopeless. Nobody ever cares in Seattle. Um, and then they went on the streak and everything turned around. And what's interesting about it is that they had had a referendum on the vote on the stadium that month and it had failed. And, and I had heard that Hiroshi Yamachi, who owned the team, had basically said, I'm not going to put any money into this thing because if the thing fails, I got an excuse to get out of this. Um, and the, and, the, and the, the, the stadium resolution failed. And then they went on that incredible three-week streak where they won everything in sight. They beat the Angels on the last day, and then they beat the Yankees. And everything turned around. And I had to laugh that after, after the, the run was over and the town had completely turned around, um, the governor called a special session of the legislature to pass a stadium bill. <laughs> and, and we used to laugh and say, boy, we couldn't get the governor to return a phone call. But... <laughs> Everything changed. And we always said, look, the only way to make this work is you got to win. And when they won, then they got the new stadium. I mean, the equity, and then they got a cable deal. The cable industry changed in the intervening years. So it was, you know, listen, I love those guys. And, you know, Edgar, I, one of my favorite things in baseball is in spring training, I, you know, I looked and I said, how does this guy hit 350 everywhere he goes? And our guys basically say he's not going to be any good. And I, I talked to, Remember debating with Woody Woodward and saying, how is it that the guy, you know, is, is a hitting machine and we don't think he can, you know, even if he makes the major league roster, he'll do anything. And it was like, he, he's not a five tool guy. He's, you know, he doesn't have enough pop in his bat. doesn't have any great speed, not a great defensive guy, uh, which is all true. Um, but uh, I can still remember we started with a guy named Darnell Coles. Mm -hmm. uh, Darnell was the th starting third baseman, and Darnell won the job, and, and Edgar was relegated to the bench, and Darnell started the season hit like 110 for the first two or three weeks. And we put Edgar in, in third base, it's sort of out of desperation, and, you know, the, and the guy just kept hitting 320, 330. He was an absolute hitting machine. I loved Edgar. Um, I mean, it was just, you know, it was fun. You knew in those days, Randy was, it was always an adventure. You know, you knew the joke used to be that Randy would throw his last warm up, you know, before an inning, you know, into the backstop. So <laughs> especially with a left-handed hitter, you know, it was like, oh my God, my life's in my hands. But yeah. Randy, several years later, worked with Nolan Ryan and he got his you know, he got his control, and then he became unhittable. You know, you talked about the TV deals. You were on the TV committee during your yeah. ownership period. So at any time, did you foresee some of the future with the massive national deals that, that uh, started pouring in and the team of well, local think, deals? I think what I saw, and, and, and it's one of the reasons that I, I got into it, I saw the value of local cable. Uh, and that was really my major... You know, listen, I love baseball. I'm obviously a sports fan. But we got into it because we thought the economics would get dramatically better. We were right. We were just in the wrong market. Mm. Uh, those cable deals started around the time we were in baseball. And they exploded, but they didn't get to Seattle three years later. But, yeah, we saw that. We knew that the game, uh, because of the nature of baseball with 160-some games a year, uh, that it was perfectly suited for cable programming. So in this 
time we're in now and players and owners are fighting and you know the backstories behind it all uh, oh yeah when you hear bill dewitt jr uh, go on the radio and say that owning a baseball team is quote not very profitable what do you think well i i i think a couple things asset values have grown dramatically and the reason they've grown and this is going to sound weird is that you've created so many multi-billionaires in this country that have bid the prices up. So I would say that, that you know, I, and again, I haven't looked at Bill's numbers in St. Louis. Um, the game is, is I believe it's profitable. Uh, I think this year it probably can't be profitable. Um, but I think the game is profitable. Um, but, you know, we usually buy businesses based on 10 times cash flow, 8 times cash flow, 12 times cash flow. And I think the, the relationship between the asset value and the cash flow is totally different. I mean, you know, the best example is, is Steve Ballmer who paid $2 billion for the Clippers and the cash flow was maybe $10 million, $20 million. You know, so that, and that's been a function of just people with so much wealth in this country just saying, I don't care what the price is, I'm paying it. So, but, but, you know, but on the other hand, I, I don't know what Bill paid, what their group paid for the Cardinals, but my guess is it was probably, you know, $150, $200 million. And I guarantee you that if they went to sell the Cardinals today, uh, I'm sure the franchise would be worth well over $2 billion. You tried to get back in about 15 years ago. It might have been you holding up the World Series trophy with the Nationals. How close did your bid come? Well, we came very close. There's a very big backstory on that, which I won't get into. But there were a lot of people in baseball who wanted us to get back in. Uh, the fact we weren't lo local in Washington, even though we put together a great local group uh, led by Eric Holder, who became Attorney General of the United States, and mm -hmm. Calvin Hill and Art Monk, and, um, and and a friend from baseball from radio, Art Keller and Max Berry. We had a wonderful group. Um, but you know, at the end of the day. Uh, Bud chose Ted Lerner, and they've done a nice job. And the one, you know, how could you argue with winning the world's championship? How how much time did you spend in Seattle during the years you owned the team? I really, I really spent um, during the season. I was there for all the home games, and I would sort of fly back to Indiana and deal with Emma's business when we were on the road. Mm -hmm. um, it, although I also dealt with baseball, the baseball sort of became all consuming. During the during the winter, what I would do is I, I, I was divorced uh, and I had my kids on the weekends and I'd sort of drop them off to school Monday morning and then I'd jump on the plane and go to Seattle and spend and usually come back Friday night. So I was I was there a lot. OK, so you're in a position to answer this question for me uh, when you're driving home from a Mariners game and, you, yep. you know, sports talk has exploded and it's all over the country now. Are yep. you listening to people in Seattle Talk about the Mariners and the Mariners' ownership on the very vehicle you created. Sweeney, I'll tell you a great story, the quintessential story. Um, I have a dear friend, Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, and Jerry, Jerry was sort of, as it was and has still been a big brother to me. Uh, Jerry was in Seattle one day, and he said, I'm driving down the road, and I'm hearing them rip you. And he said, the guy who invented a format that has changed all of our lives to the worse, uh, that is, you know, and, and he's, he's right because, you know, in the old days before sports radio, you know, if somebody took a shot at you at a column in the morning paper, that was the end of it. 
but with sports radio, if you did something, you could get you could get annihilated 24 straight hours. And he said the guy who invented this format that's made everybody in, in sports miserable because it's just nonstop. He said the fact that this guy now owns a major league baseball team and this guy is just getting ripped proves to me that there's a god. You know, and I, I always thought it was one of the great lines of all time. <laughs> That's fantastic. When the anniversary rolls around every year, July 1st, yeah. uh, your phone ring. Do you just kind of think about it every once in a while? What happens? Oh, yeah, I do. Um, I, I can still think of that first year we went away on the 4th of July. We went to the Hamptons with my kids and some friends and uh, listening. And, and uh, there was one joke. We had a, a P.I., uh, we had a, a salesman, salesman named Ron Weiner, and and there was a PI for like a burial thing or something where you you know if you if you if your loved one dies you know call this number and we'll take care of the burial at low cost or whatever. And I remember saying that's the worst commercial I've ever heard. I don't know how much they're paying us for it, but but whatever they're paying us, it's not enough. And I remember calling back and saying, what are they what are they paying us? This this ad's awful. And somebody said, we don't have the, the heart to tell him it's a PI. I don't know if you know what a PI is. Go ahead. A per, it's a per inquiry where the advertiser doesn't pay you unless they get certain rates of response. So in other words, this horrible commercial, we weren't even getting paid for. But, <laughs> but, in, but in the early days, you know, they took whatever they could get because, you know, but but yeah, I mean, I, I can still remember day one of all the radio stations we ever owned. That was the one that I loved the most. Uh, when we sold it, it was hard, but we needed to do it, you know, uh, and Mel, Mel was sitting there and uh, Mel wanted fan because it had so much cachet on wall street that Mel knew he was going to get ready to do an, uh, an initial public offering. And he knew that owning fan would just help him with all, all sorts of people who were on wall street and he was right. So he made us an offer that we sort of, you know, an offer we couldn't refuse. My thanks again to Jeff Smolian, not just for spending some time with me on the phone last week, but for having the vision and the wherewithal to bring WFAN to life. I was a teenager in Middletown, Pennsylvania when it went on the air in 1987. Four years later, I was a junior in college enjoying a summer internship that set up the rest of my life. When I was a kid and first started to think about making a career of sports on the radio, a place like this where we talk sports all day and night and call it work, a place like this only existed in my dreams. Jeff Smullyan's vision helped bring my dreams to life. If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com and Apple Podcasts. Check out recent conversations like the one about the current state of a minor league baseball team with Hudson Valley Renegades president Steve Gleiner. Also check out talks with Joe Torrey, Don Roy King, John Pessa, Ricky Super 70s Sports Cobb, and many more. Make sure you subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thank you for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.